Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Today I'm pleased to welcome Dr. James Kast. James and I first met when he was a PhD student at Oxford University and I was still trying to learn what it means to be a policy advisor. Otherwise, he's an economist working in the office of the Chief Economist Africa region at the World Bank in Washington, D.C. He is co-lead of the Changing Wealth of Nations, a flagship World Bank program on the valuation and changing usage of countries' natural, physical, and human capital around the world. He is former director of research at the Natural Resource Governance Institute and founding staff member of the Natural Resource Charter at Oxford University. James, welcome to the Shilakama Extractive Podcast. It's nice to speak with you after so long. Thank you very much. Very nice to speak with you too. So, uh, James, why is climate change a major source of concern for resource and doubt developing countries? Well, of course, we know the uh, rising impacts of climate change are very scary. And so my work focuses on the countries of sub-Saharan Africa in particular, where we see extreme weather events, we see drought, we see a whole myriad of consequences from climate change. But the work that I do focuses not on the consequences of climate change, but on other dimensions of climate change that give us reason to be concerned. And my answer will focus on resource-rich countries who have many different types of commodities under their ground. So we can think about coal, we can think about oil and gas, but we can also think about minerals and metals. And here climate change means something quite different. It isn't just about the above ground impacts of climate change. There's also a question of what's gonna to happen to the markets for these commodities over the coming years. So one we can think about is the market for fossil fuels. The world needs to decarbonize urgently. And so there is a lot of talk about leaving fossil fuels in the ground and what it will take to drive a shift away from a dependence on oil and gas towards energy systems that are focused on low carbon technologies. And we've seen estimates that say to meet the ambitious goals of the Paris Agreement, for example, as much as 80% of the world's fossil fuels would have to remain under the ground. And so, of course, this is a, a, a very scary prospect if you are a low-income, resource-rich country, say in sub-Saharan Africa, that has a lot of oil and gas that hasn't yet been developed under your ground. Does this mean 80% of your oil and gas is going to remain under the ground? So there are several challenges with this question. One is, who decides which fossil fuels are going to remain under the ground? Is there truly the political will or the technologies available that are going to drive that pace of decarbonization around the world. And then assuming it does happen and we do meet the ambitious Paris goals, where is this stranding going to take place? So the industry refers to this idea as stranded assets, thinking about the kind of assets that could no longer be useful in a world that decarbonizes. So where is this stranding going to take place? How fast might it occur? Uh, and and um, and is it in fact going to happen? 
And then the third challenge associated with this is the estimates of 80% of fossil fuels remaining under the ground is based on current known resources. But what we see in particular in sub-Saharan Africa is a lot of new exploration taking place and many new discoveries taking place. So we have, um, we've had two decades of many major petroleum discoveries happening and new ones happening all the time. So we have major offshore gas deposits in Mozambique, in Tanzania. We've got new petroleum in Senegal, Mauritania. More recently, we've had new discoveries in Gambia and, and, and Namibia. So all over the continent, there are new discoveries taking place. And so what does this mean in the context of climate change? Does it mean these discoveries are worthless, that they'll never get developed? Or does it mean something more complicated? Hmm. Yeah, these are really uh, you know, frightening statistics when you think about the potential uh, opportunity cost to the developing countries. So you have uh, uh, spoken so far about fossil fuels, which is the petroleum sector. How does this challenge, this challenge of transition to green energy, uh, relate to minerals and metallic uh, resources? Right. So we have many countries in Africa that are rich in fossil fuels, but then we have as many rich in different types of metal and mineral commodities. And of course, these are not carbon dioxide producing, so they don't have the same kind of um, greenhouse gas footprint um, in the use of these metals and minerals. Instead, on the contrary, they're actually very important to the low carbon transition. So this could be good news for African metal and mineral producers. We're going to need a whole bunch of these metals in electric vehicles, battery technology, electronics, um, other kinds of low carbon technologies, wind turbines, and the, the energy infrastructure that's going to drive this low carbon transition. So if you look at the, the industry forecasts, you actually see rising demand projections for many of these metals and minerals over the coming years and decades. And so this could be good news. This could mean in the context of rising global demand, there's gonna be new opportunities for investment, new opportunities to develop uh, these newly discovered resources um, and potentially higher prices as well, which can translate into increased tax revenues and ultimately increased money to be spent on poverty reduction and economic development within these countries. Um, so the the challenge could also be seen as an opportunity, but nothing is guaranteed. And of course, these are structural trends that we're talking about. But there's also cyclical trends that happen. Um, the mineral and metal markets are notoriously cyclical. And just as one example of this, the the severe economic headwinds that we're facing following the Ukraine invasion and and, and concerns about global inflation. The copper price, for example, has gone from record highs just four months ago, has now dropped about 30, 33%, and is now the lowest price it's been since 2020. So all of this should be taken in the context of these are projections. This is about the low carbon transition, which will take years and decades to come to fruition. And in the meantime, prices can be very cyclical. So... Uh... It's it's. Uh, I was curious because you you use the word could be an opportunity. Uh, so basically, what you're saying is that nothing can be taken for granted because not only do you still have the the normal 
market uh, volatility, but then you also have certain uh, you know, events in the world that can shift this, uh, let alone technology. But stay with the supply and demand curve, uh, and especially the gap for supply of metallic substances. Just based on what we know now about the technology, the demand, who produces, who buys, who are the likely winners in terms of geopolitical structures? Well, first we have to separate the cyclical forces from the structural factors. So in cyclical terms, the, 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 the current uh, events in the world are driving uh, price volatility. And price volatility means it's very hard to know where demand and where prices will be even 12 months from now, let alone 24 months or, or years ahead. So the first challenge and the first potential losers are the producers, right? So you 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 develop these resources, you you attract investments, you get everything in place, but you can't know with with certainty where prices are going to be um, uh, in the years ahead. And so that can be very challenging because these are big upfront investments in many cases. And while you may read the longer term trends correctly, that the world is going to need more of your particular commodity, in the shorter run, uh, you don't know where prices are going to be. And so think of copper producers right now. This is this is one of the challenges of, of being a copper producer going into what many foresee being a, a global period. Um, and copper prices are often a, a lead indicator of, of that kind of uh, global economic sentiment. So there's these kinds of losers that can happen over the, the cycle of prices. But in terms of the winners and losers over the longer term, well, we already talked about the fossil fuel producers. There's a lot of downside risk in their future. And so they need to think about, yes, oil and gas prices are high today, but over the longer term, are they going to remain high and elevated for years and decades to come? For that, we're much less certain. On the other hand, the winners could be uh, the producers we talked about of these these metals and minerals that are going to be part of the low carbon transition. But of course, this is not certain. This depends on can you attract investment to develop your resources? If you're sitting on a lot of lithium or manganese or coltan or whatever it may be, the mines still have to be developed. The investment still has to be secured. You still have to ride the tiger of commodity price volatility. Um, and of course, there are other countries other companies competing for market share. And so a high demand projection doesn't translate automatically into a high price projection because the supply side responds. And the supply side can respond in many different places in many different ways. So we've completed new work on this uh, in the context of Africa, a new World Bank report called Africa's Resource Future. And one of the things we do is we look at uh, trade elasticity in metals and minerals. And what we find is that there is quite high elasticity of supply in certain metals and minerals, which implies that when demand goes up, prices may go up, but supply responds rather effectively. And so that means supply goes up. And so that can put downward pressure on prices, but it can also be a challenge for African producers who are trying to capture market share in these particular markets. It means that they're not the only ones trying to do that. There are many other countries who also are endowed in either the exact same commodity uh, 
all commodities that are useful substitutes in similar kinds of technologies. So, for example, imagine a world where we had very elevated lithium prices for a very extended period of time. You could imagine the world and companies seeking alternative battery uh, technologies. There are alternative battery technologies out there that require less lithium inputs than, say, lithium-ion batteries. And so, of course, there's there's elasticity in supply of the commodity, but then there's also elasticity of substitution, which is where the market can shift into adjacent uh, and similar technologies. So all of this means is that even the winners cannot count on periods of extended elevated prices um, uh, and take that for granted, that, that short-term price volatility is not the same as, as long-term elevated prices. Yeah, so the, the points that you make are very important because what you are saying is that true, there's the big picture, which is that we know there's growth in demand for certain uh, green energy transition critical minerals. But that when you factor in uh, all the supply and demand uh, variables, but then add to it potential substitutions or for that matter, potential change in technologies that may then require mm. different minerals as well as the response by your producers. The picture does not look as straightforward as it is. And I, I guess this is where knowledge-based decision-making and policy becomes critical, isn't it, James? And not just think you can live off the top line in terms of the public narrative. Absolutely, that's right. So you can look at prices today and they might be somewhat of a predictor of prices tomorrow, but there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of factors that are outside of your control as, say, a policymaker that can affect the price and the opportunity tomorrow. And so one of the messages from our report is, yes, there's a lot to be optimistic about for Africa's metal and mineral producers, but fate is partly in their hands and it depends on the choices that these decision makers make today that will determine how much of that opportunity is really exploited in the years to come. I, I suppose it also comes back to the typical strategic position of any country, which is to say, to the extent that we know uh, what the prevailing global and geopolitical environment is today, to the extent that countries can move and move quickly, they are more likely to benefit from the what we know now and the medium-term stability before things change. And so I, I guess for uh, African countries and others, speed really becomes part of how uh, countries can be competitive. And the, the longer they take to leverage these uh, prevailing circumstances, uh, the more exposed to the uncertainty you speak about uh, they become. But I want to come back to the energy transition. So, I mean, my understanding now is that if we look forward and project demand for uh, energy transition critical minerals, everybody agrees that here and now we don't have enough to make that uh, you know, grand global shift. So, so the question then uh, becomes one of whether or not, given what we know, uh, we are in effect uh, perhaps potentially doomed before we even start? Well, 
this is an important question. I think the the the, the needs from the global uh, low carbon transition are uh, significant, and so the the forecasts do tell a story where we're going to need many more resources brought to market in the coming years and decades. Does that mean that the Earth does not have the metal and mineral potential to meet that need? No, it does not. And in fact, there are new discoveries taking place all the time. The countries of Africa that, that my work focuses on uh, have historically been underexplored. If we look at it in terms of uh, the, the amount of exploration spend per square kilometer, uh, much of the African continent remains underexplored. And so we already know of significant undeveloped resources. There is significant untapped potential already that we know about, but there's probably yet more to come. And so this is not a story about physical constraints on the availability of these metals and minerals. It's much more a story about economics, which is how do we bring these to market? Which are the countries that are going to be, as, as you say, going to be the ones who can move fast and be nimble and be responsive to these shifting demands? And how will market forces shape this? Will it be through elevated high prices? Or will it be that the industry and the countries that anticipate this higher demand and can actually um, meet this higher demand with higher supply in a timely manner? Because then you might actually see um, uh, uh, stable prices um, if, if supply can truly keep, keep pace with demand. And of course, the final part of this is in, all in the context of um, a highly cyclical, highly volatile price environment, particularly with these uh, geopolitical forces that are happening around us at the moment. And so that means, can countries focus on the strategic goal um, over the medium term, while also taking advantage of these short-term elevated prices? Because, of course, that can help mobilize investment, that can help galvanize action that's going to lead to having the resources available for the future. So uh, I want to uh, come back to the notion of uh, reduction of carbon emissions by targeting, uh, you know, industries that have a significant carbon footprint, including mining. So is there a disconnect then uh, in the global policy discourse? Because on the one hand, we want to transition to clean energy and mining is a, a major contributor. But mining also has uh, adverse uh, environmental impact in part because of its high energy intensive nature. I, I, is there a contradiction here, James? So there's no contradiction in the sense that the metals and minerals we've been talking about are going to be essential to driving the low carbon transition. So there is no uh, question about their importance. The question is much more about their sustainability and the way in which they're developed. So one thing that the environmental debate has, has succeeded in doing is, is shining a spotlight on this question of sustainability. And sustainability is a big concern in, in resource rich countries. Many countries have not develop these resources in a sustainable manner. What do I mean by the sustainable manner? It's not just about the local environmental footprints, which many uh, are concerned about. It, it's also about the sustainability of the economies, of the, the, the benefit to citizens. And so 
a classic definition of sustainability is meeting the needs of the current generation without compromising uh, the ability for future generations to meet their needs. Now, with a finite resource, um, of course, you're not necessarily going to have the resource under the ground forever. If you develop it today, it's not available to be developed tomorrow. But what you can do is you can use the proceeds from that development to invest in education, to invest in infrastructure, to invest in the people in your economy so that you can drive prosperity. And so the economic development challenge for mineral rich countries is really how to translate below ground wealth into above ground sustainable prosperity. And here we see countries uh, a very mixed picture. Some countries have done quite well on this front. Of course, Botswana is, is one of the great global success stories in this regard. But many countries have done much less well and have actually consumed the proceeds from mineral wealth rather than invested the proceeds from mineral wealth. Hmm. So uh, we speak about a surge in uh, demand for metallic substances. But of course, we have been here before. This is not the first time that we have seen a boom in commodity prices. So what are the lessons that uh, countries in emerging markets can draw from previous uh, market upsurges? Yeah, so, I mean, this is, as you say, this is uh, not the first time, right? The, this is a little bit of history repeating itself. We have had many uh, commodity price booms and, and periods of uh, sustained high commodity prices. The the, the last super cycle uh, in the, the first decade of the 2000s is, is very um, uh, instructive uh, for countries today. And the first, the first lesson, I suppose, is these prices will not last forever. We don't know how long sustained prices uh, will be elevated for. But so the first is uh, make hay while the sun shines. So that means uh, bringing projects to development, but it also means using the revenues that you're getting today in a very smart and sustainable manner. So I already talked about reinvesting these revenues smartly in people, in infrastructure, not in increased resource dependence. The objective for countries um, is to increase sustainable above ground prosperity. And so one thing we see from uh, the work that uh, I've been involved in on the changing wealth of nations is the richest countries in the world have the highest share of their wealth in human capital, not in natural resources. So the, 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 the opportunity here, if you're a metal and mineral producer, is not to increase the amount of wealth in minerals, it's to increase the amount of wealth in people. And there are many pathways to doing that. One is to invest in health and education, um, and to create high quality jobs in the economy and, and, and so on. And, and all of this will translate into a legacy from a price boom. Instead, what we see many countries do is, um, is to consume the boom. And what I mean by that is to spend on recurrent spending that doesn't leave a lasting legacy, that doesn't promote economic sustainability. Yeah, so, so uh, in other words, the word of caution is, you know, you have the potential to win the lottery. And if you do, in God's name, don't go and splash, invest instead, because there's no guarantee you will win the next lottery. Here is my parting shot, uh, James. I mean, when you explain what should be done, 
it, it seems so straightforward. Why do you think these lessons are so hard for policymakers and politicians to grasp? Well, yes. I mean, this is the the the, the crucial question. I think that populism and short-termism, um, the the expectations of citizens play a very crucial role. And not just in resource-rich countries. These are forces that are very important in, in non-resource-rich economies, in in uh, in many of the developed economies around the world as well, of course. Um, we, we've done some work on this and how, how this affects policy choices in resource-rich countries. So if you look at the effect of major oil discoveries, for example, what we see is that this can really kickstart a expectations boom where you have pressure on governments to deliver immediate benefits for people. So you have elevated citizen expectations, you have elevated political expectations, and you have a temptation to then go to the market to borrow money and to consume the boom. And what we found with the, the work on, on oil discoveries is countries are even doing this before production begins. So you see uh, uh, an effect where they go and borrow ahead of production, they consume it, and then if prices crash or projects are delayed, um, then big problems can arise. We call this effect the pre-source curse because it happens much earlier than the resource curse. Um, and so short-termist thinking is endemic in many countries across the world. This isn't limited to resource-rich countries at all, but the stakes are much higher because if you screw it up with resources, it may be the only opportunity you get well, James, that was very insightful. I found your comments very helpful. A lot of food for thought, and I think the followers of the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast will benefit from your comments. Thank you once again for your time. It was lovely speaking with you. Thanks very much. I enjoyed the conversation. A pleasure to be here.